Hello, everybody. Welcome to the third panel. I'm Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow in the Center for Constitutional Studies. I'm also the managing editor of this year's Supreme Court Review. Uh, this is the potpourri panel. I've been trying to figure out a common theme of all of these cases. And the only one I can figure out is that they're on this panel, uh, which is bootstrapping. But uh, you know, lawyers are not averse to bootstrapping, so that's fine. Uh, one thing about these cases that uh, relates at least to Another case that, was, uh, that is not being discussed about today, but is in the review, Horn versus Department of Agriculture, which is the raisins case. Tim will talk about how raisins have to do with his case to some degree. Uh, if you guys had followed the Horn case, uh, Michael McConnell, who argued the case at the Supreme Court, has an excellent article about the fight against the despotic regime of the Raisin Administrative Committee. And if there's one thing that you need to learn from that is don't tick off the California raisins. They do dang fine versions of Marvin Gaye songs, and they will all come back and get you in the courts. As far as these two cases, I can say that these were two of my favorite articles in the review, not so much because Tim's wasn't expectedly wonderful, but these two articles in particular changed my view of the case after I'd read it originally um, in, in, in an interesting way. They first thought the cases were not terribly interesting, and then after I read their articles, I realized that they were very interesting cases, and that's what a good law review article does. I'm going to go just in order it is on your program, so we're going to start with Tim Sandifer. As uh, we've said, that the full bios are in your, uh, in your materials, so I'll just keep a short bio. He is the principal attorney at the Pacific Legal, Pacific Legal Foundation. He's a big friend of Cato. He's the author of three books, including Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in the 21st Century, which a second edition is coming out in February. Uh, a right to, right to Earn a Living, and Conscience of the Constitution. He is a graduate of Hillsdale College and of the Chapman University School of Law. Please welcome Timothy Sandifer. Thank you very much. So the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners versus Federal Trade Commission case involved the process of teeth whitening. This is a cosmetic procedure where a plastic strip treated with peroxide is applied to the teeth for a few minutes to make them brighter. Well, the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners, which is made up entirely of practicing dentists who are elected to their positions by other practicing dentists, declared that this constituted the practice of dentistry and that nobody could do it without a license. Obviously, this was not an effort to protect the public. Teeth whitening is entirely safe. You can do it at home with an over-the-counter kit that you can buy on Amazon.com, which I guess isn't over-the-counter. Um, instead, it was an effort to protect licensed dentists against having to compete economically against cosmetologists and other non-dentists who provide teeth whitening services at the mall and at makeup stores and so forth. As is so often the case, state regulators were serving the interests of existing licensees by barring competition from entrepreneurs with a new idea. One might imagine that this would automatically violate the federal antitrust laws, such as the Sherman Act, which prohibits every restraint of trade. But the bizarre fact is that the one entity that can most effectively create monopolies, the government, is immune from those laws, thanks to a doctrine called Parker immunity. Parker immunity is named for a 1943 case called Parker versus Brown. And that case did involve the same idiotic raisin confiscation scheme that Judge McConnell discusses in this year's Cato Supreme Court Review. That program allowed and still allows raisin producers to uh, create pro-rate marketing plans which restrict raisin production in California's Central Valley, uh, where about half of all of the raisins in the world are produced. This scheme is a complicated cartel system that exists explicitly to restrict supply in order to make your food more expensive. In 1940, the, a raisin packer named Porter Brown sued, challenging this program. Uh, but while the Supreme Court acknowledged that the Sherman Antitrust Act prohibits every contract in restraint of trade, and that the raisin program would have been illegal if it had been organized and made effective solely by private persons, it ruled that the California raisin cartel was exempt from the Sherman Act because it derives its authority and its efficacy from the legislative command of the state. The justices thought that the antitrust laws were not intended to apply to state governments. To, quote, nullify a state's control over its own officers and agents, they declared, would unduly interfere with the federalist system. So states can exempt even private citizens from the antitrust laws by passing a state law that deputizes those private citizens as state regulators. This conclusion is, frankly, weird. 
the theory behind the antitrust laws is that restraints on free competition harm consumers by raising prices and harm entrepreneurs by limiting economic opportunity. As far as these consequences are concerned, there is no difference between private efforts to monopolize and government efforts to monopolize, except that the government efforts to monopolize will actually succeed. This factor, this factor strongly suggests that anti-prosecutors ought to, if anything, monitor the behavior of state governments more closely than they do private entities. But Parker focused only on protecting state autonomy. Quote, in a dual system of government in which, under the Constitution, the states are sovereign, an unexpressed purpose to nullify a state's control over its own officers and agents is not likely to be attributed to Congress, end quote. Now that's fallacious. The antitrust laws are, or purport to be, an exercise of Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce, which, by definition, preempts a state's laws to the contrary, so they cannot unduly interfere with the dual system of government. And the Sherman Act forbids every restraint of trade without exception. Interpreting that expansive term to forbid state monopolies would simply be enforcing the Sherman Act as written. As to state autonomy, the Parker Immunity Doctrine creates a very clumsy and bizarre form of reverse preemption, which allows states to block the operation of federal laws. In no other circumstance that I'm aware of can a state shield citizens from the operation of a federal law without even consulting Congress. Parker immunity therefore justifies one critic's claim that the ideology of federalism has displaced the national model of competition. But federalism is really not the right word here because genuine federalism balances state autonomy with federal oversight in order to protect individual freedom. The Parker court was concerned more with a crude desire to protect state power, even though directly contrary to the text of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Now, in the years since Parker immunity was invented, courts have recognized that it creates a real danger of rewarding the mischiefs of faction. By putting the power to nullify the antitrust laws into the same hands the same regulators who establish all the other rules for an industry and which the politically influential members of that industry are already trying to lobby and to influence. So Parker immunity ensures that when an existing business gains control over the regulator and uses its power to outlaw its own competition, it simultaneously becomes exempt from the anti-monopoly laws. So the game of regulatory capture becomes winner take all. So the court has fashioned two limits on the availability of Parker immunity. One is that any uh, anti-competitive activity the state undertakes must be clearly articulated state policy. And the other one is that the uh, entities engaged in that anti-competitive conduct must be actively supervised by state officials. Unfortunately, these requirements have proven to be little more than formalities. Clear articulation, for instance, once required that anti-competitive conduct be actually compelled by state law before it would be immune from the antitrust laws. So in Goldfarb versus Virginia State Bar, the court denied immunity to state officials who established a price-fixing scheme for lawyers. They said the first question is whether the activity is required by the state acting as a sovereign. But since Virginia law was silent on the matter, it could not be fairly stated, said that the state required the anti-competitive activities. They said, in fact, that it was not enough that the anti-competitive activities were allowed. It had to be required. But later cases eliminated that requirement. In a case called Southern Motor Carriers, the court ruled that anti-competitive conduct need not be compelled by state law. It was enough if state law simply allowed state bureaucrats to decide whether to impose an anti-competitive policy. If state law permits but does not compel that conduct, Parker immunity would still apply. This is called the permissive policy rule. The second requirement for Parker immunity, the active supervision requirement, has also been diluted. This requirement is meant to provide some assurance that a private party that's engaging in anti-competitive conduct is actually serving the public interest instead of its own private interest. But the court does not actually demand this showing from a whole category of entities that it considers sufficiently trustworthy. So in a case called Town of Halley versus City of Eau Claire, the court said that Parker immunity would be given to city governments because, well, I guess they, out of the goodness of their hearts, they will not engage in anti-competitive conduct. In a case called Earls, the Fifth Circuit held that it was not necessary for the state to actively supervise a group of CPAs who were deputized by the state to regulate the practice of accountants. 
They said, despite the fact that the board is composed entirely of CPAs who compete in the profession that they regulate, the public nature of the board's actions means that there's little danger of a cozy arrangement to restrict competition. Well, well. Now, recall that the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners is a group of practicing dental professionals deputized by the state to regulate the practice of dentistry. They are elected by other dentists, not by the general public and not by the legislature. About a decade ago, after licensed dentists started complaining to the board about the availability of teeth whitening services, of course, there was no record of any member of the public complaining about this, the board issued 47 cease and desist orders to small business owners throughout the state who offered teeth whitening services. So the FTC initiated an unlawful competition proceeding against the board, alleging that it was engaged in anti-competitive conduct, and surprise, the board responded by asserting Parker immunity. As an attorney who specializes in suing the government, I can attest that that's basically the law government lawyers know, is immunity doctrines. The FTC rejected the immunity argument, and the Fourth Circuit agreed. It held that the board was not being adequately supervised. Therefore, Parker immunity was not available. The Supreme Court took the case, and in a 6-3 decision, Justice Kennedy ruled in favor of the FTC. Private parties, quote, cannot be allowed to regulate their own markets free from antitrust accountability. When considering whether to grant or withhold Parker immunity, a court's primary concern is political accountability. Elected officials are electorally accountable, so, and they pursue a broader range of goals than does a private market actor, so that diminishes the likelihood that they will use their powers for private enrichment. But the dental board was not elected by the public, and it was currently engaged in the business, so they would have to satisfy the active supervision test. Justices Alito, Scalia, and Thomas dissented. They objected to withholding immunity because the dental board was not structured in a way that merits a good government seal of approval. In their view, the danger that regulatory entities may be captured by private interests was beside the point. Antitrust laws should simply never apply to state agencies. End of story. True, Parker itself said that immunity should not apply merely on a state's say-so, but Justice Alito viewed that as referring only to cases where the state tries to immunize, immunize a private entity from the law, and that wasn't happening here because the dental board was a full-fledged state agency. Now, I find that very unpersuasive, given that Parker immunity, like so much else in antitrust law, is entirely a judge-made doctrine without any basis at all in the written language of the statutes. It seems a little late to start sounding the alarm about judicial activism. Indeed, notwithstanding his efforts to appear more objective and judicially restrained, Justice Alito's position is every bit as much the product of policy considerations, just a pro-state government policy consideration. Alito argued that the Sherman Act is not an anti-corruption or good government statute, but it's also not a state autonomy statute. If we went by the statutory language alone, state entities would not have any immunity at all. The problem with the North Carolina dental case is that it doesn't go far enough. Whatever one thinks about antitrust law, and I don't think much, there is no rational justification for exempting state government entities. In a future case, the court should restrict Parker immunity much more, and it should do so by a rigid active supervision requirement a reinvigorated clear act, uh, articulation requirement that requires state commands, and a substantive requirement rooted in a concern that went largely undiscussed in the case, the constitutional right to earn a living. The Constitution guarantee, guarantees to everyone the right to pursue a, the vocation of his or her choice, and although that's much neglected today, it, that right is deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. This constitutional aspect suggests that a substantive restriction should also apply, and I suggest that the court should impose a substantial advancement test requiring that any restriction on competition must substantially advance a legitimate, an important government interest before immunity can apply. And this proposal is ironically bolstered by a point that the dissenters made. They argued that Parker immunity should be understood in historical context. And they said, well, in 1890, when the Sherman Act was passed, the regulation of medicine was regarded as falling squarely within the state sovereign police power. It was only with the New Deal, with the Commerce Clause changing, that it was necessary for the court to invent the immunity doctrine so that states would be protected from federal override. But that argument cuts both ways. The Sherman Act was also written at a time when constitutional protections against abusive licensing laws were also enforced much more than they are now. In fact, the case the dissent cited to support its argument was 
Dent versus West Virginia from 1889, the year before the Sherman Act was passed. And that case stands for the proposition that people have a right to earn a living without unreasonable interference from licensing laws. The court said that if the state imposes a, a licensing requirement that is not appropriate to the calling or profession or attainable by reasonable study and, and uh, application, that law would unconstitutionally deprive a person of his right to earn a living. Dent asserted federal protections for economic liberty. And the authors of the Sherman Act can't have anticipated today's excessively deferential rational basis test any more than they could have anticipated the New Deal. So if historical context justifies the Parker Court's decision to create state action immunity in antitrust law, it also justifies courts reading into the same antitrust law protections against state limits on economic liberty. If state immunity from the antitrust laws is, as the court has said, granted out of respect for the state and not out of respect for the economics of price restraint, then the flexibility that states enjoy here should also should mirror the flexibility they enjoy when they deviate from other constitutional baselines. The court should apply a rule that presumes in favor of antitrust liability for the government unless limiting competition is genuinely necessary to protect an important interest. Such an intermediate anti, um, a form of means end scrutiny would require the state to articulate an important goal and prove that its limit on competition actually achieves that end. As Dominic Armenteno says, the antitrust has always been irrelevant to the real monopoly problem in America. That real problem being the use of government power to illegalize economic competition. The rhetoric of state autonomy that underlies Parker immunity and ultimately the North Carolina case and or the dissent in this case, is simply not compatible with the text of the antitrust laws, the policy that they embody, or the realities of politics and economics. On the contrary, rational antitrust policy would not only apply to government agencies, but would target them first and foremost. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. I always prefer my cartels coming to your business with pipes and breaking your stuff rather than in the form of the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners. Um, our next speaker is going to be Sasha Volek. Uh, he is a professor at Emory University. He earned his bachelor's from UCLA and his JD and his PhD in economics from Harvard. He has clerked for Judge Alex Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit and for Justices Sandra Day O'Connor and Samuel Alito. Please welcome Sasha Volek. Thanks very much. Um, I um, am going to be talking about the Amtrak case, uh, which has the official name of uh, Department of Transportation, the Association of American Railroads. I participated in that case by uh, filing an amicus brief. Uh, I also signed on to an amicus brief in the North Carolina dental case. Um, while writing this article on the Amtrak case, I discovered fairly late in the day, that actually Cato had also filed an amicus brief in this case on the opposite side from me. Um, but clearly that didn't hurt me and they invited me anyway. Um, so um, this case is about um, a constitutional separation of powers doctrine called the non-delegation doctrine. And uh, the non-delegation doctrine um, does not make its way into Supreme Court cases very often, but actually it's fairly important. In the administrative state today, we see that uh, agencies are constantly making rules, doing sort of quasi-legislative activity, EPA rules, FDA rules, FCC rules, all sorts of things that look as though they're legislation, but they're done not by Congress, but by agencies. And uh, is this constitutional? How can it be constitutional? Um, traditionally, in modern law at least, the, um, the interpretation of Article One, the very first sentence of Article One of the Constitution, is that legislative power is vested in Congress, and that means that Congress has to do all the legislating. Congress can't transfer its legislative power to anybody else. Congress can't say, hey, Obama, we trust you. We're going to let you pass all laws that are within Congress's power until the end of this Congress, and we're just going to go home now. Um, that would be transferring legislative power, and Congress can't do that, not to the president, not to agencies, not to anybody else. They have to use all their legislative power. Um, they're the only ones that can use the legislative power. If that's the case, how can it be okay for agencies to do this rulemaking? Well, the theory, the fiction, if you will, is that what the agencies are doing is not actually legislative. 
because when Congress authorized the agency, they gave them a standard to apply. They, they didn't just say, hey, EPA, do all the rules for a clean environment. See ya. Instead, they said the EPA has to identify particular air pollutants and set tolerances that are adequate for the public safety, et cetera. So they had some you know, greater or lesser degree of guidance within the law. So to, the modern theory is that that's good enough. What's important is that Congress at least lay out a so-called intelligible principle. So if Congress lays out an intelligible principle, then when the agency then makes rules, all it's doing is applying the intelligible principle. It's a delegation of power, but it's not a delegation of legislative power. So if you buy that, and you don't have to, but if you do buy that, then the administrative state is constitutional. Now, what does it take for a principle to be intelligible? Not a whole lot. For example, the Federal Communications Commission is supposed to hand out radio and TV licenses in the public interest. What does that mean? So, but that's considered an intelligible principle. So the FCC is constitutional. Uh, anyway, so you can see why the non-delegation doctrine is actually a constitutionally important separation of powers doctrine because that's what, it, that's what makes the difference between the constitutionality and unconstitutionality of vast areas of government and the administrative state. If you want to tighten up on non-delegation, a lot of the administrative state is going to have to go. And if you want a looser non-delegation doctrine, more of the administrative state is constitutional. Now, even though it's important, the last time that the Supreme Court struck down a federal statute. By the way, this only applies to federal statutes because it's based in Article I. It's about Congress and its legislative power. This has no application to states and state statutes. But uh, the last time the Supreme Court struck down a congressional statute based on the non-delegation doctrine, it did that twice in 1935. Um, and it has not shown any interest in reviving that since. And since then, it has pretty much rubber-stamped everything. Now, occasionally, the DC Circuit tries to revive some form of the non-delegation doctrine, and it gets smacked down. Um, Fifteen years ago, they tried to declare the Clean Air Act unconstitutional, and the Supreme Court smacked that down. Um, sometimes the non-delegation doctrine applies in this sort of shadowy way, where instead of striking down a statute, the Supreme Court will use a kind of avoidance canon where they recognize potential non-delegation issues and they use the doctrine to read the statute in a different way so as to avoid those sorts of issues. That happens sometimes. So Cass Sunstein, for example, thinks the non-delegation doctrine is not really dead, it's just resting, it's just hiding. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the background here. The way this case comes up, relates to Amtrak. What is Amtrak? Amtrak is the National Passenger Railway, uh, Railroad Corporation. And uh, that was created by Congress in 1970 to uh, take over passenger railway operations from the existing railroads. And the existing railroads were able to offload their common carrier responsibilities onto Amtrak. In exchange, they have to do things like always give Amtrak the right of way. Um, so that's, the, that's, what we, that's what we have now. And um, recently it was found that Amtrak trains were not always arriving on time and that maybe they thought it's because the private railways are not actually giving the right of way as much as they should be. So now there's a regime, Congress enacted a regime where we have to develop metrics and standards for measuring the performance of Amtrak trains. And if those metrics and standards fall below some acceptable level, then we, that triggers an investigation. And potentially, that can be the basis for fining private railroads for not yielding the right of way. So this is a regulatory scheme which can result in actual fines on private railways. So now, how are these metrics and standards developed? Amtrak develops them together with the Federal Railroad Administration. Now, the Federal Railroad Administration is a government agency, and Amtrak is, what is Amtrak? So um, the DC Circuit got this case, and uh, Judge Janice Rogers Brown wrote an opinion where she said, number one, Amtrak is actually a private organization. And number two, Amtrak is exercising this sort of regulatory power because it, it can participate in making these metrics and standards that have a regulatory effect. And delegating, Congress delegating regulatory power to a private organization is per se unconstitutional. 
if he delegates to an agency, you just use this intelligible principle doctrine, which is like a rubber stamp. But she said, if you delegate to a private organization, no intelligible principle, even if you can find one, that is still going to be per se unconstitutional because Congress cannot delegate to private parties. So her decision was based, crucially, on two propositions. One, that Amtrak is private, and two, that Congress can never delegate to private. Now, neither of those is obvious. For example, Amtrak being private. Now, a moderately naive observer who knew a little bit of Supreme Court case law could come in and say, I didn't think Amtrak was private, because there's a case called LeBron, not the athlete. Um, and uh, in LeBron, that was about whether Amtrak had to respect First Amendment rights, because someone wanted to put, um, uh, put an ad in... Grand Central Station or Penn Station or somewhere like that about uh, the Contras. Um, and uh, Amtrak, which uh, manages the station, said no. And the question is, was Amtrak violating First Amendment rights? And the Supreme Court said, actually, Amtrak is a so-called state actor for purposes of the First Amendment. And uh, state, if that's the case, that means they're also a state actor for purposes of due process and equal protection clause and so on. So if that's the case, how can Amtrak be private for purposes of the non-delegation doctrine. And Judge Brown said, well, it's okay. You can be private for some doctrines and public for other doctrines. A and here is how we can tell that Amtrak is private for purposes of this doctrine. And she did um, a sort of reasoning about the purposes of the non-delegation doctrine. That's all described in the paper. I, I can leave that for Q&A if you like. I did not find that very convincing. And it was a sort of in my, to my mind, an ad hoc reasoning for why Amtrak is public for some doctrines and private for others. That was the first prong, that is Amtrak private? But even if Amtrak was private, there's still the second prong, this idea that there's a per se rule against congressional delegation to private parties. Um, and uh, where Judge Brown got that is there was a 1936 case called Carter Cole, where the Supreme Court really did strike down it was a regime where um, a majority of the coal industry could vote and impose regulations on the rest of the coal industry. So it was the coal industry regulating the coal industry. And the Supreme Court in Carter Cole said that was unconstitutional because you can't allow part of the industry to regulate their competitors. So Judge Brown said, aha, you see Carter Cole says per se rule against delegating to private parties. Now, my view is that that's a misreading of Carter Cole, and that Carter Cole was, in fact, based on the due process clause. That due process prevents private parties from, well, due process prevents any kind of biased regulation, regulation where, they're, uh, where the people who are regulating have a financial interest, for example, in the outcome of the regulation. That due process doctrine, it doesn't care whether you're public or private, um, but it does depend on actually finding bias. So I think Carter Cole is actually entirely about the due process clause and not at all about the non-delegation doctrine. So I think that Judge Brown was quite wrong in, um, in interpreting Carter Cole there. And so in my view, there has never been a Supreme Court case stating any per se rule against delegating to private parties. In my view, there has never been a Supreme Court case in any way supporting a differential treatment of private and public parties in terms of the non-delegation doctrine. And in fact, on four separate occasions, and all these cases are still good law, the Supreme Court actually has upheld delegations um, to private parties based on the non-delegation doctrine. So anyway, I think that both of those prongs were quite wrong. But in particular, I think that it's, um, it's especially wrong to say that there that the non-delegation doctrine distinguishes between public and private. Uh, so that was potentially a really interesting case because thanks to her holding that Amtrak was private, that tees up this question of does the doctrine apply differently to public and private? And that went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court rendered the most boring, <laughs> fact-specific, Amtrak-only decision possible that does not give us any guidance for the future on the non-delegation doctrine, because what did they do? They said, yeah, well, actually, Amtrak is public after all. Um, so now the only reason, and so given that, they don't have to decide whether there's a different public or private doctrine, because if Amtrak is public, you just use the same old rubber stampy intelligible principle doctrine. And they sent it back to the DC Circuit. So that was kind of a letdown.
Um, so, however, um, this um, the decision which. Um, uh, the end result was unanimous, uh, but it, it did yield um, a couple of interesting separate opinions. So Justice Alito wrote a separate opinion where he said, okay, I agree with all this. It was a concurrence. He said, I agree with all this, but let me talk about how things should come out on remand. Um, Judge, uh, Justice Alito likes to do this, to just um, opine on other issues that weren't really raised in the case, but which would be useful for the court deciding the case on remand. I'm not really a minimalist myself. I actually like justices to give guidance on important questions, so I appreciated that. And he was saying, well, uh, even though um, this particular aspect of the Amtrak statute may not have been unconstitutional, here are all these other constitutional problems. Amtrak pretty much violates all the rest of separation of powers uh, because it violates the appointments clause and you know so on. So that was very interesting, and we'll see how the D.C. Circuit does that on remand. I myself filed an amicus brief with the D.C. Circuit on remand. Um, the, most uh, the most interesting decision is Justice Thomas had a concurrence in the judgment because way back 15 years ago in Whitman v. American Trucking, he, uh, he had a concurrence where he said, you know, we keep talking about intelligible principle, but that's not in the Constitution. The Constitution just says Congress has to use its legislative power and can't delegate it. I'm not convinced that intelligible principle really implements that. We ought to rethink that from, from the ground up based on our uh, original meaning. And it took 15 years for another case to come up, but now it has. And so he wrote an opinion which is as long as the majority opinion plus Alito's opinion combined, where he goes through a whole historical original meaning analysis uh, of what the non delegation doctrine should be, and he thinks it should be incredibly tight. He thinks, it, uh, he thinks actually any delegation um, outside of Congress is unconstitutional if it allows the delegate to exercise any discretion at all. And so, like, for example, if there's delegation to somebody to merely find a fact, and if that's discretionless, okay, that's okay because there's not any legislation going on because um, there's no discretion. But you and I know that pretty much every delegation to um, the administrative state involves huge discretion. So it's hard to see how basically anything is going to be constitutional under Justice Thomas's view. So it's a very interesting view. He's been the one who's been the boldest in, um, uh, in staking out this position. And he also says in particular, this is a separate view, is that here's also why you can't delegate to the private sector. Because Article 1 says legislative power in Congress. Article 2 says executive power in the president. Article 3 says judicial power in the courts. That's all the power. So you can never delegate to anyone who is outside of the executive, the legislative, or the judiciary. And that means you can't delegate to the private sector. So all very interesting. I also think it's quite wrong. Um, for example, how about all of these laws, social security, income tax, and so on, lots of laws incorporate state definitions of marriage. So for example, to find out whether you can um, uh, to find out whether you have to file jointly or individually, we look to whether you're married, and to do that, we look to state law. Or what about uh, tort claims against the federal government? There's only a waiver of sovereign immunity in particular cases if you can fit in the Federal Tort Claims Act, and um, if you can get past all the exceptions, once you're litigating against the federal government, they look to state tort law to find out whether you can recover. So now states, by changing their marriage law, by changing their tort law, can alter the amount of money that the IRS is entitled to, and they can alter the sovereign immunity of the federal government. And so basically, what the federal government is doing is delegating discretionary authority to states. And that can't possibly be unconstitutional. Not only that, but um, when prosecutors decide whether you have violated a law, Pretty much any, I mean, yes, they're finding facts about whether your conduct fits within the elements of a particular federal crime, but finding those facts involves huge amount of discretion. You and I know that it is impossible to write a totally discretionless federal crime which will give no discretion to the prosecutors to find out whether you have violated that. And that would make pretty much federal prosecution unconstitutional, but that is a core 
executive function which would have been accepted at the founding, and so I think that can't possibly be right. Um, so, but I give Justice Thomas credit for going through this inquiry of how should we have a proper non-delegation doctrine, because I agree that the non-delegation doctrine is really important, and that probably the non-delegation doctrine, as we do it today, is too broad and too permissive of delegations. There ought to be something narrower, but the question is, where do you actually draw that line? That's a difficult question, and really only Justice Thomas is willing to tackle that issue on the court right now. Thanks very much. Ah, thank you, Sasha. I was uh, reading the journals of the first Congress the other day, because I do that sometimes, and uh, there's a part where you see, the I think, the first appearance of the non-delegation principle, which is when they're talking about post roads, and they're saying, where should the post roads go? And someone says, we should create a committee that will decide where the post roads go, and Fisher Ames stands up and says, mockingly says, well, how about we just appoint a committee that will do everything and then we can all go home. And this is the very first time I ever saw that. Uh, Adam J. White is a counsel at Boyd and Great Associates and an adjunct fellow at the Manhattan Institute. His writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal and others. He has studied at Harvard Law School and the University of Iowa and clerked for Judge David Santel of the DC Circuit. Please welcome Adam White. Thank you very much. That it comes in your size. Huh. <laughs> Michael Dukakis. Yeah. Um, before I begin, I do want to take a moment to thank Roger and Ilya. It's hard to exaggerate how difficult I made uh, their lives over the course of the summer in terms of finishing this article and getting it to them. And they were excruciatingly, for them, uh, generous and patient with me. And, and I'm very appreciative. And I'm very glad to be here today. I'm here to talk about Perez versus Mortgage Bankers Association. It's a lot like Sasha's Amtrak case. It raises a lot of very interesting issues, uh, virtually none of which were actually decided in the case, um, but all of which gave rise to an interesting debate both before the case and in the concurring opinions and now going forward. Um, we all know how a, how a bill becomes a law, speaking cliches. Uh, statutes are passed by Congress and signed by the president. When an agency uh, promulgates a regulation, it too has to go through a process before doing so. It proposes a regulation, opens it up for notice and comment, uh, people submit their comments, the agency comes up with a final rule and you move forward on to judicial review. For both of those, there's an opportunity for input, for debate, for some semblance of checks and balances or accountability. But the Administrative Procedure Act contains a, a pretty important exception for what are called interpretive rules. Uh, under Section 553 of the Administrative Procedure Act, it says interpretive rules don't have to go through notice and comment. It's a pretty big loophole. And it doesn't take a, a PhD in political science to understand the incentives you create when you tell an agency that it has to go through uh, an onerous process or even a somewhat onerous process to make a new regulation but if they just want to reinterpret an old regulation, maybe even completely reverse their, their, their previously stated interpretation of that regulation, they can just do it on their own without any process and move forward with the new law. Um, now, for years, as you might expect, the courts tried to draw lines between interpretive rules and what are called legislative or substantive rules uh, to at least impose some structure on this division. Uh, on this, what someone call a loophole. Uh, for years, scholars called that body of case law a considerable smog. Uh, it, oftentimes a little better than the old I know it when I see it uh, breakdown of, of law. But the Supreme Court, uh, sorry, the D.C. Circuit came up with a number of tests to try to distinguish these interpretive and substantive rules. And one of the tests came in a case called Paralyzed Veterans, later a follow-up case called Alaska Hunters. And they said that even if an agency issues a rule that the agency says is merely interpretive, doesn't create any new substantive law, uh, that rule might still be a substantive law despite the agency's designation. When the agency makes a significant revision to the agency's own previous authoritative or definitive interpretation of its regulation, then that new rule is little more than an amendment to its old regulation, and therefore it needs to go through notice and comment. This is the paralyzed veterans doctrine. 
Now, some have criticized this. In a recent article, Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule called it an example of libertarian administrative law. And I assure you, they didn't mean that as a compliment. But in fact, uh, the cases that gave rise to this doctrine were written and signed by a variety of judges with, from a variety of interpretive approaches, uh, representing a variety of political parties and the presidents that appointed them. Uh, and furthermore, for all of the scholarly outcry that surrounded the paralyzed veterans doctrine, and I assure you, administrative law scholars hated it, uh, the doctrine actually was just never really applied that much. It came up in a couple of cases, paralyzed veterans, Alaska hunters, one other case, and then a case involving the Department of Labor, and that's what gave rise to the, the case that went to the Supreme Court. Under the Fair Labor Standards Act, uh, employers are obligated to give certain employees uh, benefits regarding overtime work and so on. Now, in 2006, the Department of Labor had interpreted its own regulation under that statute and found that mortgage loan officers were not entitled to overtime in certain circumstances. Uh, later, the agency referred to that interpretation as definitive. But in 2010, the Department of Labor unilaterally reversed itself. So, no, actually, on second thought or on third thought, uh, these employees are entitled to overtime. Now, they didn't go through notice and comment to change that interpretation. And so the case went to the D.C. Circuit, where the D.C. Circuit held, in a very short opinion, a very blunt opinion, no, under paralyzed veterans, uh, you needed to go through notice and comment before changing your definitive interpretation of the Fair Labor Standards Act. In the D.C. Circuit, it was a pretty straightforward case. They weren't challenging paralyzed veterans, uh, the doctrine. Uh, they, were, they merely applied it. But when the case got to the Supreme Court, it gave an opportunity for uh, the court to reverse the D.C. Circuit. Administrative scholars loved this. There was a brief in support of cert from 70-plus 70, administrative law scholars. A line in the brief said, we know of no administrative law scholar who disagrees with us on the merits of this issue. And they said, you know, to the extent that somebody didn't join our brief, it's not because they disagree with the merits. It's for other reasons. Um, you know, we laugh, but the Supreme Court basically agreed, decided 9 nothing in a blunt, short, I think, 14-page opinion that the D.C. Circuit was completely wrong. Uh, they said when you have an interpretive rule, it doesn't matter if the agency is reversing itself, reversing a previous sub, uh, definitive interpretation of the rule. The APA says that interpretive rules don't, get notice, don't have to have notice and comment. That's the end of the story. It's not the job of the D.C. Circuit, the Supreme Court said, to impose new procedural requirements on these rules above and beyond what the APA already requires. They, they invoked a case, some of you may recall, called Vermont Yankee, a 1970s case in which the Supreme Court said the APA sets the basic rules for administrative procedure. Parties aren't entitled to anything more than that as a matter of law, and it's not the job of the courts to pile on new procedures on top of the APA. A couple of quick caveats. Uh, the Supreme Court thought this was an easy case because they said the challengers conceded that it was an interpretive rule. Actually, by my reading of the briefs, the uh, petitioners didn't, or the, um, the challengers didn't concede that at all. They conceded that the rule contained an interpretation, like lots of rules do. Even legislative substantive rules, they often contain interpretations. By my reading, the party never, the party never actually conceded that it was an interpretive rule, but that was pushed aside. A second thing that made this case a lot simpler than it should have been, I think. The court treated the paralyzed veterans doctrine as expressly piling on new procedures on top of interpretative rules. Uh, by my reading of paralyzed veterans, actually the case was intended to distinguish interpretive, interpretative rules from substantive rules. In fact, one of the leading administrative law treatises called the Administrative Law Treatise, uh, written by uh, the most respected administrative law, law scholar in the country, uh, even said this is a rule that the D.C. Circuit uses to distinguish legislative from interpretive rules. But the Supreme Court sort of brushed that aside and said, no, this is about what rules apply or what procedures apply to administrative rules. So now, if that's all there is to the case, an interpretative rule um, that we know is interpretative and uh, there's no uh, dispute otherwise, it's a pretty simple case and it would have been an unremarkable bit of litigation, a simple case of the Supreme Court reversing an obviously wrong decision. But this case attracted a lot more attention because it was surrounded by a much broader debate, uh, not about process, but about deference, the amount of deference that agencies should get when interpreting their own regulations, a doctrine called our deference, not O-U-R, but A-U-E-R, or uh, seminal rock deference, uh, the doctrine under which an agency gets utmost deference in interpreting its own, interpreting its own rules. Even more than Chevron deference, the agency has to be blatantly, flagrantly wrong before the court will displace the agency's interpretation of its own rule. 
Now, when the hour or seminal rock deference doctrine was sort of reinforced in the 80s and 90s, it seemed a pretty logical outgrowth of Chevron from the 1980s. You know, in Chevron, the courts give an agency, uh, let me try this again, if an agency interprets a statute, the courts will defer to that interpretation so long as the statute doesn't, isn't am, unambiguous to the contrary and so long as the agency's interpretation is reasonable. It's pretty significant deference. And the court more or less decided that if the, if the agencies get significant deference when it comes to statutes, they ought to get even more deference when it comes to interpreting a regulation. After all, they wrote the regulation. They know better than anybody else what it ought to mean. And that doctrine was pretty unremarkable uh, and not criticized all that much until Justice Scalia issued an opinion in 2011, a concurrence in a case called Talk America, where he said, you know, this is a little bit, this is not like Chevron deference. In fact, this is a little bit crazy. With Chevron deference, we have one body of government writing the law, another body of government interpreting and applying the law. So there's some semblance of separation of powers. With Seminole Rock deference, you have one body of government writing the law, and then the same one interpreting and enforcing it. Uh, raising some pretty significant structural questions. Now, the fact that Justice Scalia criticized the doctrine is pretty remarkable because Justice Scalia wrote the Hour case. Um, it's, it's uh, I think, a testament to his ability to reflect and occasionally change his mind, in this case, really at the encouragement of a law review article by one of his uh, most prominent former clerks, John Manning. Now, why did this become, this de deference question become a focus of the Perez case? Well, because of the relationship between process and deference. A pretty obvious problem exists when an agency goes through no real process before making new law and then turns around and is able to get judicial deference to that new regulation. Uh, there's a, as the saying goes, the agency ought to either pay me now or pay me later, give me some process up front to participate, or give me the process of judicial review at the end where I can criticize what they've done. Um, this comes up in the concurring opinions. This came up in a lot of the briefs, the, the, the worry that so long as we have our deference, we really ought to subject more uh, agency regulations to the upfront process of notice and comment rulemaking. Now, the government and others pushed back against this. They said that the Administrative Procedure Act's uh, exemption for interpretive rules existed for purposes of government efficiency, that if we pile on more uh, requirements on top of the agencies, it'll make them harder to do their work. Now, I know a lot of private industry feel the same way about government uh, regulation itself, but... Uh, in any event, uh, the, the people that pushed this criticism, they missed half the story. It's true that the APA, it's true that the APA did say that, it's, that efficiency counsels in favor of uh, exempting interpretive rules from notice and comment, but they also said that the upfront process of notice and comment was unnecessary for interpretive rules because they expected the courts to give plenary judicial review to interpretive rules to look at them very thoroughly, to not defer to them, and to, uh, to analyze them independently and render judgment without any deference to the agency. Uh, you said you went through the early Congress. Uh, that sounds a lot better than going through the 1945 Congress. When I was writing this brief for, uh, for, for the Cato Institute in this case, I spent a lot of time going through the legislative history and the academic debates surrounding the framing of the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act in 1945. And it's very, for all the, 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 the normal challenges of going through that, that kind of legislative history, it was very interesting how the framers of the APA really took care to look seriously at the administrative state as it existed at the time and to craft rules that really spoke to the administrative state as it existed at the time. So sure, they knew that uh, legislative rules, uh, substantive rules, we're going to get some judicial deference at the back end of the process, so they put notice and comment proceedings at the beginning for those. For interpretive rules, they knew that the courts would or were supposed to give full judicial review at the back end of the process, so they exempted them at the front end. Um, and furthermore, interpretive rules at the time didn't have what was called the force of law then. Now, maybe that was a formalistic definition, but in the, presence, uh, at the present time, when an agency goes to a court and says, you owe us controlling deference to our interpretation of the rule, it's hard to say that an interpretive rule doesn't have the force of law. And so when all of those presumptions about the APA have fallen away, where interpretive rules effectively are binding and do have the force of law, 
where they aren't getting judicial review, full plenary judicial review at the end of the process. It doesn't seem unreasonable to me for the courts or even more the Congress to return to the question of what process is owed and how much deference is owed for this type of rule. Now, real briefly, I'll note that this litigation gave rise to a few ironies that I want to point out. One is with respect to how to interpret the APA. Uh, administrative law scholars, including many who are not exactly strict, strict constructionists when it comes to the Constitution, are the strictest of constructionists when it comes to interpreting the APA. They applied to it the most narrow, limited reading possible without any reference to the actual functions it was supposed to serve. Uh, and like I said earlier, uh, those who would say that in interpretive rules are not binding uh, and therefore uh, they don't need any process up front are the first to say that the courts are in fact actually bound by those interpretative rules. So this case, like I said, didn't decide a whole lot in and of itself, but it accelerated debates over the future of deference. Um, it's much like the Amtrak case, where there's a lot of discussion around it because these cases are arising at a very interesting um, time in administrative law. Now, it seems to me, reading the opinions of the justices in this case, that our seminal rock deference is in a lot of trouble. I think the justices, may, if not five, at least four of them recognize that it, prevents, it presents significant practical and principled problems, and maybe the court should dial back the amount of deference they give to an agency's interpretation of its own rules. The bigger question is, what happens to Chevron? Like I said, our deference was more or less, it seemed to the court at the time, a logical outgrowth of Chevron. Well, now that, she now that our deference seems to be uh, disproving itself, what does that mean for Chevron? Now, Justice Scalia was the most ardent defender of our deference. He wrote the opinion until he changed his mind. As hard as it may be to believe, given his support of Chevron deference, I have to wonder whether he's having a if slower, still uh, straightforward rethinking of Chevron deference. He's hinted at it a little bit in a separate opinion in Perez. He hinted at it a little bit in his court opinion in the city of Arlington case a couple of years ago. I don't know whether he'll actually change his mind on Chevron the way he did in our deference, uh, but I wouldn't put it out of the question. I'd say I just want to point in closing to a 1989 article that Justice Scalia wrote called Judicial Deference to Administrative Interpretations of Law. He thought he was thinking back then, just a few years after Chevron was decided, about whether it would stay, whether it had staying power. And he said, in the long run, Chevron will endure and be given its full scope, not so much because it represents a rule that's easier to follow and thus easier to predict, but because it more accurately reflects the reality of government and thus more adequately serves its needs. He wrote that after he was only on the Supreme Court for a few years. He's seen a lot in the intervening years, especially in the most recent years. And one wonders whether Chevron adequately serves the needs of constitutional government as much as he believed in 1989. We'll find out. Thank you. <clears throat> oh, thank you, Adam. Maybe the common theme of these, uh, this is Adam's size. Uh, maybe the common theme of these cases is that they're iceberg cases. There's a lot going on underneath. Uh, I'm going to open it up for questions. I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative here first, ask a question to Sasha on the question of private delegation. Um, is it really kind of a metaphysical question when we look at cases like Carter Cole and you look at cases like, like Schechter Poultry and the National Industrial Recovery Act, what, isn't it the fact that you delegate to them government power what then turns them into government agents? They were, I mean, it was private businesses that were using the power, but it's the delegation that turns them into public agents. So it's hard to even say which ones are private and which ones are public. Yeah, I suppose um, you could, you could, if you wanted, use that to, um, to undermine the idea that there is such a thing as a private delegation. Mm -hmm. Maybe there are no private delegations because once you delegate power to a private person, bam, they're public. Yeah. Um, and if, if that's if that's the case, then that also goes against Judge Brown's view. Uh, I think. Um, what, uh, for example, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas would respond would be that, no, not exactly, because if you were to take that approach, you would run into a different problem. And that different problem is now you take Amtrak. Let's suppose Amtrak really was private. You delegate to them. Now they're, now they're public. Um, but that, means, that must mean they're part of the executive branch. And if they're part of the executive branch, they're exercising significant power under the laws of the United States that means they're officers. That means they have to be appointed. That means they have to go by the appointments clause. And now, by saving yourself from a private delegation challenge, you've basically rushed yourself right into an appointments clause challenge. 
I guess that's also a, a common thing, even though Tim's case is state law. It's also a bunch of dental examiners who are private citizens who were given a power uh, for. Uh, uh, actually, uh, actually, related to the question, you might also ask, well, hey, Volok, you are saying that there's no, there's no non-delegation problem here, but you're saying that there's a due process problem because there's bias. What's the difference? Mm -hmm. You know, aren't you just, uh, isn't, isn't that just metaphysical, you law professors just slicing the bratwurst really thin? Um, but um, actually, it makes a big difference. Judge Brown wrongly had a footnote where she said, well... Uh, the Association of American Railroads made both arguments, due process and non-delegation, but we, re we really don't see any difference and it doesn't really matter. Actually, it matters a lot because bias, due process based on bias, that is a Bill of Rights right and it's incorporated against the states. So that means you could get state private delegations that way, which you could not do with a non-delegation doctrine. And plus, if you had such a delegation, either state or federal, you could, if it's a due process theory, you can get damages under Bivens or 1983, whereas if it's a non-delegation doctrine, there are no damages available from that. So these doctrines, it's not just pure hair splitting. Actually, it makes a difference what doctrine you go under. Todd, I think you had your hand up. Yes, Todd Gatziana from the Pacific Legal Foundation. And um, my brilliant colleague, Tim, needs no amplification. So I'm going to try to, to, to talk to the other side of the, 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 the panel. Um, I'm glad, Sasha, that you, you spent some time on, on Justice Thomas's um, separate opinion, which, which I thought was the, the most exciting. Um, and, but Adam, you, you forgot uh, to mention uh, uh, Justice Thomas's uh, most exciting opinion in your case. So I want to ask maybe both of you if, um, well, first of all, I know my excitement's out of proportion to probably its effect, but is it possible that this um, uh, will be one of those moments 30 years from now where they'll say the single justice, uh, you know, crying in the wilderness, uh, eventually his opinion, uh, you know, uh, becoming the majority? Um, uh, or is it just um, like Justice Thomas's uh, one pair, or I think it was about a paragraph a half in the trucking case that, that, it, that went nowhere? Well, I do think, I think Justice Thomas's concurrence, in both the cases, it's obvious he's reading, uh, I mean, he cites Philip Hamburger and other sort of outside critics of the current administrative state. And I think years from now, when we look back, I don't know whether we'll credit Justice Thomas for single-handedly reversing conventional wisdom on some of these things. But I do think it's quite possible that we'll look back as Justice Thomas being the point uh, or the, the, the agent by which we brought in and gave credibility to a real outsider critique of the administrative state and administrative law. Um, I've been thinking through this a little bit and hope to write about it soon, but maybe some of you have heard a book called by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. The basic point that you have a, a big new revolution in science, and then the next generation spends its time basically filling in the gaps with uh, ever more uh, minuscule layers of detail and that basically is the new status quo until there's a new revolution. But uh, at the time, the folks filling in the gap aren't aware that there's any sort of outside critique of the basic paradigm that they're looking at. I think administrative law scholars, by and large, have reached that point. I think it's very hard for them to look from the outside in at the basic structure of administrative law and the practic practical realities uh, that it should be grappling with. And I think that folks like Philip Hamburger, Charles Murray, uh, and others uh, and Justice Thomas, uh, whether I agree with them in all their particulars, and quite honestly, I don't. I agree with a lot of it, but not all of it. I think that it's very good and important that outside voices are now focusing on this and criticizing it, and I appreciate Justice Thomas's effort to bring that, ex that external critique into the discussion. Adam, you get a gold star for bringing up Thomas Coons. Thank you. <laughs> um, actually, um, you're absolutely right to be really excited by Thomas's opinion in Paris also. And I feel really bad for the poor Thomas clerks because he had this big, long, blockbuster concurrence in, in Paris. 
that was handed down on the same day as Amtrak, where he had this big concurrence in the judgment. Um, and it makes sense that he would do those together because def- like Chevron deference and basically the same idea in our deference, the reason why we have deference is because we consider it to be an implicit delegation of interpretive authority from Congress. And that means if you're going to be a skeptic on delegation in terms of the non-delegation doctrine, you will, of course, also be a skeptic. And, you know, Not logically speaking, but it makes sense. It's not surprising that you'd also be a skeptic on the question of administrative administrative deference. The only outstanding question there is you're reading the Perez concurrence and he says our, 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 illegitimate. What if you just crossed out our and put in Chevron every time? Does that follow through? That's sort of the big question. And then Michigan v. EPA, which we talked about this morning, he also has a little separate opinion there where he kind of, he was sort of cagey and he hedged himself and suggested that maybe Chevron is also illegitimate, but I, I don't think he actually came out and said it. And in that, and Scalia, who was a, has been the biggest booster of Chevron ever since his D.C. Circuit days, um, he even, it was surprising how lukewarm was his own defense of Chevron um, when, he, when he wrote separately there. And I mean, his view was, as a matter of original understanding, Chevron deference makes sense because before the APA, the uh, the traditional historical way that you would sue executive agencies, you would bring a writ of mandamus. And under a writ of mandamus, you had to show not only that the executive officer was violating the law, but that he was clearly violating the law. So mandamus had baked into the pie of um, a notion of deference. And so in Scalia's view, Chevron was justified by that. But I mean, his recent defense of that has been pretty lukewarm. Can I just add one more, just one quick thing? I think the thread that, and Growing out of what Sasha just said, I really do think the thread that unites the three cases we're discussing right now is that doctrines of delegation of the structure of government and the process that government owes the people when regulating them, those doctrines should not be looked at in silos. They are deeply intertwined. I filed a brief in in the Amtrak case really trying to highlight the way that delegation lurks in the background of the separation of powers cases and vice versa. And I think it's very important and good that Justice Thomas and others are looking past the usual lines of, of theoretical separation and seeing how these doctrines work together. In the back there. Mr. Sandifer, so I'm very curious about your thoughts. Given the weakening of Parker deference to state, to particularly to boards like state bars, which are self-regulated, do you see the possibility of antitrust action going forward in the future against these sort of uh, state ag- against these sort of semi-state-regulated so, so, agencies? So I, ha- I have a dream, and <laughs> my dream is to use antitrust laws offensively against government um, whenever possible. Um, you may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. <laughs> and, but the problem is I, I think it's going to be hard to do even given the North Carolina dental case, and that's because the, of the unusual fact about the dental board being made up of dentists who were appoint, elected to their positions by other dentists without even the legislature intervening. I think the next case that you're going to see, the state boards are all just going to say, oh, well, all of our members are appointed by the governor, and therefore North Carolina dental doesn't apply. I've been trying to find ways to to weaponize uh, the North Carolina dental decision. I, it's already being done. Um, some efforts are already underway. There's a, a very interesting case right now in Texas called Teladoc that involves telemedicine, a, a rising uh, aspect of uh, of the economy where people uh, where the use of telecommunications technology facilitates medical practice. Texas is very hostile to this. It has laws that says doctors must physically contact a patient, must be in the same room with a patient before they can practice medicine with regard to that patient, so you can't prescribe or, or advise patients over the internet. So a doctor who spends 30 seconds in a room with a patient is more qualified than a doctor who's known a patient for years via the internet, and you know that's the law in Texas. So a group has, is suing there and is challenging state laws that restrict telemedicine in Texas on, and trying to use the North Carolina dental case for that reason. But Again, it'll be, I think it'll be hard, given the uniqueness of the facts in North Carolina Dental, to use it against overzealous regulatory agencies. I, I certainly hope so, but we'll see. Um, I, uh, the, the, um, 
the thing about North Carolina Dental is um, it um, it's it's really every state now is it, it has to consider this question of how do we reorganize all of our boards to be consistent with North Carolina Dental. And I've been talking to state officials myself who have come to me saying, "Well, will you help us out and give us some advice on what we do?" Uh, one thing that you can do is have, for example, a dental board, medical board, and say, "Well, we're no longer going to have any dentists or doctors on it anymore." Um, that would certainly solve that problem. Just uh, retirees would be sufficient. Yeah, right? just, just retirees would be sufficient. But they're probably not going to want to do that. And so the question is, well, what if we want to, for us to get the uh, um, antitrust immunity, we now have to have active state supervision. Well, what form does that active state supervision have to take? Do we have to have a um, an oversight agency, much like OIRA within the governor's uh, office? Or how do we do it? Or are we going to have agency by agency oversight people who are gubernatorial appointees and not market participants? How do we do that? Um, there, I am a little bit concerned because even though I'm uh, I'm fully on Tim's side on the, that North Carolina Dental came out with the uh, came to the right decision, but um, uh, there are some there are some things that Justice Alito is right to focus on in his concur uh, sorry in his dissent. Um, like for example, if you're concerned about uh, regulatory capture, aren't these oversight agencies also going to be subject to regulatory capture? And is it really a solution to have oversight, or is it just going to you know you 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 think that you're going to solve the problem, but you're in fact not? And these are important questions that all the states have to deal with right now. Yeah, the the, the one point the den- the dissent makes that's very good is well if if we're going to get into the question of regulatory capture, why stop at the composition of the board? What about if the board is you know made up of honest people, but they don't realize that they've been captured or something like that? That's a hard question to answer. Now their solution, if you call it that, to that question is complete judicial deference, hands off, let the states destroy people's livelihoods at will, and that, that's obviously a, a cure worse than the disease. My name is Stephen Shore. There was another case of delegation that you haven't discussed. Perhaps it'll be done by the next panel, but the ability of a state legislature to delegate apportionment to a private body. Uh. Now, one could say that in, de- in the delegation, it ipso facto becomes a public entity. So the state legislation really has not abandoned uh, its function. Or one could say, no, you cannot, as the losing side said, uh, cannot delegate this to any other group of individuals other than members of the state legislature. Any thoughts on that? Redistricting? Yeah, so that's... Uh since that's a state government thing, clearly the, the non-delegation doctrine is not going to apply, so that doesn't fall within this doctrine. But I think you're right that the, there is there is a question there, uh, and uh, the, the constitutional provision says that the legislature has to do the apportionment, and then the question is, what does legislature mean? Um, I'm actually, I haven't thought very deeply about the case, but my sympathy is toward the view that a lot of bodies can be the legislature, and usually the legislature is the body called the legislature, but sometimes for particular purposes, another body, for example, the people, can be constituted the legislature. So what if we didn't have a state legislature at all, but everything was done by referendum, everything? Then the people would be the legislature, and if you had a division of powers between the legislature and the people, then for constitutional reasons, the legislature would sometimes be this and sometimes that. So I actually find that I, I have some substantial sympathies to that, and I think that there are interesting uh, connections between that and the Prop 8 Hollingsworth case uh, about the ability of private people, the proponents of a referendum, to have standing to challenge the, uh, to, uh, to challenge the non-enforcement and so on. Uh, anyway, very interesting, but beyond the non-delegation doctrine writ small. We have time for one more short one. Here. Hi, uh, Stanley Cook, U.S. Government. Uh, in the administrative law area. There's a U.S. District Court decision that everyone's familiar with out of Brownsville on the immigration, which is now before the Fifth Circuit. Is there an administrative law question in that decision? The immigration case? Yeah, yeah there is. Uh, it's in... Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it was it's executive order question, rulemaking. Right? Yeah. Right? Josh wouldn't know the yeah, best, Josh yes. Would. I'm delegating, yes. Uh, you are now the legislator, because apparently well, Sasha says... Yeah. 
So the question in this case is whether the Department of Homeland Security in promulgating this policy towards immigration needs to go through rulemaking, notice and comment rulemaking. The question is, is it a substantive policy for the president to effectively delay the deportations of four million Americans? And we at Cato have not taken a position on the APA issue, we've taken an issue on the constitutionality, but the narrow way of resolving this is indeed on the APA grounds. Um, despite our brief, I don't expect the courts to rule on the constitutional issue, that'd be great if they do, but it's mostly actually an APA issue. Uh, if the court does rule that the APA was not complied with, they have to go back and do notice and comment. But the downside is there's only about 18 months left for this presidency, and I don't know if they could actually finish in time, which is the point Adam and I have been discussing at great length. We have a countdown. Yes, indeed, we do have a countdown. They can't get everything through. So a Supreme Court ruling on notice and comment would effectively send a death knell for DAPA. Thank you. Excellent. Well, with our surprise guest panelist, I'm going <laughs> to call it there. Uh, thank you very much.